What's the worst gift you've ever heard of being given to a kid? Maybe it was a gift that you received. Maybe it's one that you gave. Or maybe it's one that you saw your kid get from somebody else. I have no idea. I asked a few people here in the office, and Greg, who is a phenomenal guitar player and vocalist, said that when he was a kid, he asked his mom for an acoustic guitar. And what she got him instead was one of those decorative guitars that you put on the wall that you get at like a Christmas tree shops or like a Bed Bath & Beyond, something you put on the wall behind the couch in between two family photos. Like you can't actually play it, but it looks like a guitar. It's just much smaller and fragile. He never had the heart to tell her that it was the worst gift he ever got. I don't know why, but it's still not the worst gift I heard about on staff. Tyler is our audio and lighting guy here at Grace. His parents got him a Barbie backpack when he was a kid. I have no idea what they were thinking. And he didn't say much more about it, but you know third grade was rough for Tyler. My wife had a pretty bad gift going into middle school. Everybody in their early 80s wanted a boom box. All the cool guys did all the music videos. Uh, had people with boom boxes and the break dancers and rappers. Everybody had a boom box. You wanted to ride around the neighborhood on your bike with your boom box playing whatever your favorite music was. And she asked for one. And that Christmas, at the end of all of the presents being opened, there was still one present left and it was boom box sized. And she was super excited. She opened it up, was incredibly disappointed to find out that her parents had bought her a sewing kit instead. So I I could have been married to a famous rapper, but no. Uh, Sorry, that sounds really bad. But dang it, she can sew a button on a shirt in less than a minute. She's a ninja with a sewing needle. Still not the worst gift I've ever heard of, though, for a kid. The worst one was actually in the Christmas story. It's in Matthew chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up there, and I'll start reading in verse 10. And here's what it says. When they, the wise men, saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I'm good with gold. It spins everywhere. Frankincense can be sold, but myrrh? That's embalming fluid. Like who? (laughs) Have you ever gotten like a really awkward gift and you're like, thanks, right? Like what did Mary say? Like she sees the gold, that's wonderful. The frankincense, oh, okay, that's very thoughtful. Here's some really sweet smelling embalming fluid, Mary, for her baby. It would be like, get away from my child with that stuff. Like what what are you insinuating with that? Now, each of the gifts that were given to Jesus by the wise men had prophetic symbolism. And the frankincense symbolized Jesus as the high priest, the mediator between God and man. He's the one that represents us before God. And God the Father had said, Jesus, if you've seen, Jesus actually said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. So he's the one that presents God to us, and he's the one that presents us to the Father. But myrrh, the embalming fluid, like well, where's the prophetic symbolism in embalming fluid? Now, myrrh's mentioned 17 times in the Bible. The first time it's ever mentioned is in the book of Genesis. Joseph is the favorite son of his father, Jacob. And his older brothers hate him for it. And they come up with a plan to fake his death and sell him into slavery to these traders, these spice traders on their way to Egypt. Spice traders are the Midianites, and the spice they were selling to the Egyptians is myrrh because the Egyptians used myrrh in embalming their dead. 
Later in Exodus chapter 30, and we're going to read this in a minute, uh, God instructs Moses to take oil with myrrh and anoint everything associated with the atoning sacrifices for man's sin and the tabernacle. Solomon, in his love letter that we call the Song of Solomon, which is a great, very graphic play, like it, it reads like the script of a play between a woman and her husband and her husband and a husband and the woman, and it's, it gets very graphic. And it mentions myrrh several times as an oil and ointment that they use to anoint themselves before they give of themselves fully to their spouse. It's also mentioned as an anesthetic in the crucifixion of Jesus when somebody takes a spear and a sponge and mixes myrrh and, and uh, a vinegar on in a sponge and gives it to Jesus to dull his pain. But he also knew it would dull his senses, and so he refused it and didn't take it at all. But the gift of myrrh to Jesus by the wise men points out three things about Jesus. And the first is this. It connects Jesus directly to the atoning sacrificial system in the Old Testament, in Jewish history. In Exodus chapter 30, I referenced this a minute ago, but now we're going to read it. Exodus chapter 30, verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, collect choice spices, 12 and a half pounds of myrrh, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pound of fragrant calamus, and 12 and a half pounds of cassia. As measured by the weight of the sanctuary shekel, and also get a gallon of olive oil. Verse 25 says, like a skilled incense maker, blend these ingredients to make a holy anointing oil, and then use this sacred oil to anoint the tabernacle. That's where the sacrifices were made. The Ark of the Covenant, which is what the sacrifice was placed on. The table and all of its utensils. The lampstand and all of its accessories. The incense altar, that's where the the uh, uh, frankincense was offered. Verse 28, the altar of the burnt offering and all of its utensils and the wash basin with its stand. Consecrate them with this oil mixed with myrrh to make them absolutely holy. After this, anything else that touches them will also become holy because of what the myrrh had done in making them holy. So myrrh, cassia, cinnamon, and calamus were the key ingredients to the oil that made all sacrifices that were placed on the altar holy. In fact, once it was consecrated by the myrrh-tinged oil, anything else that ever touched it also became holy. So myrrh applied to the place of sacrifice transferred holiness from the altar to the thing that was laid upon it. It commuted holiness, which is the whole point of the sacrifice. Our sins are commuted to the sacrifice, and the sacrifice, which makes atonement, had no blemishes, no spot, no sin, and its righteousness was commuted to us. And the symbolism of this commuting of sin to the sacrifice and righteousness from the sacrifice to us is myrrh. So offering Jesus myrrh at his birth to Mary was acknowledging the whole purpose for which 
Jesus had been born, yes, to be the go-between between man and God, but also be, to be the sacrifice that made that relationship with God possible. And that brings me to the second thing that Murr points to in Jesus, and that's this. Murr identified Jesus as the actual sacrifice. No one gives embalming fluid to a baby. It doesn't make any sense at all. Like, these guys are from Persia. So even if Daniel is the one who told them that someday you'll find the Messiah because a star will show up that will move and then lead you to to Bethlehem, and so they follow the star, and okay, that's fine, but where does the whole point of this baby being the sacrifice for the sins of mankind come from? And I think the answer to that is from a scroll that was written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the wise men showed up and 150 years before Daniel was ever born. So if Daniel is the one that started that educated elite class in Persia that the wise men come from, then they would have had access to the exact same Jewish writings that Daniel had access, which would have included Isaiah. And here's what Isaiah chapter 53 says about Jesus as the atoning sacrifice in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1 says this, Who has believed our message and to whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? And he's going to answer that by saying, anybody who hears what I'm about to say. So who does God reveal this special information about the Messiah who's going to show up someday? It's everybody who hears what I'm about to say right now. Verse 2, here's what it is. My servant, and he talks in the past and future at the same time. It's kind of a prophetic thing that they did. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him at all. You've seen those pictures of Jesus where he's kind of looking up like this with blue eyes and sandy blonde hair, and right? Like, like, like this, and he's like a really nice looking dude. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2 says that there's nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, that there was nothing physically that would attract people to him. And this might make people uncomfortable, but Isaiah says that when the Messiah get here, he's actually not going to be a really attractive dude. He's not going to be good looking. I'm, and I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry if that, if that surprises you or, or messes up the picture that you have hanging in your living room. But there's nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. What does that mean? I mean, it means what it says. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected. It's talking about this Messiah who's going to come, the one that Daniel talked about, the one that the wise men came looking for. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. And all of us, like sheep, have strayed away and we've left God's paths to follow our own. We've all done this. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. God commuted to Jesus as the one who bears our sins. He commutes our sins to him so that his righteousness could be commuted 
to us. That's myrrh. Keep going. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he didn't open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, and his life was cut short in midstream. Jesus had no biological descendants, and his life was cut short at 33 years old. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never done, had never deceived anyone. So he had righteousness that could be commuted to us. But he was buried like a criminal, but he was put in a rich man's grave. We're going to read about who that rich man is in just a few minutes. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life was made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. And I am a spiritual descendant of what Jesus did on my behalf when he became the atonement for my sins. He will enjoy a long life. The Bible says that he would sit on the, on the throne of his father David forever. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. And when he sees all that is accomplished because of what he anguished through, he'll be satisfied. And because of his experience on the cross, my righteous servant, Jesus, will make it possible for many to be counted righteous like me, hopefully like you, for he will bear all of their sins. I will give them the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for those who actually were rebels. So if the Magi are a remnant of Daniel's influence in Persia, then they had access to this passage of Scripture also. So when this servant of the Lord showed up, they knew why he came. So they came prepared to offer him what he needed. But did Jesus need this myrrh? And John chapter 19 tells us the answer to this. In John chapter 19, verse 38, it says, Afterward, after Jesus died on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, he's the rich man who had the grave. Joseph of Arimathea, who'd been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus's body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. That's all the way back in John chapter 3. He's the one that Jesus had said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the same Nicodemus. The same man who had come to Jesus at night and he brought 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from what? Myrrh in allies, aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and long sheets of linen cloth and Jesus' body was wrapped and myrrh, and all because his body was the atonement for the sins of mankind. That's what was alluded to in that gift of myrrh from the wise men, connecting him to the sacrificial system, not only just connecting him to it generically, but saying he is the one around which the sacrificial system was pointing. And that brings me to the third thing, that we learn about Jesus. And that's this, that Jesus' sacrifice frees us from sin and its power. Because when Jesus died, he took our sins on the cross. And that's what 1 Peter chapter 2 says, verse 24. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. Because by his wounds, we are healed. Why does that sound familiar? Because we just read that in Isaiah. 
Once you were like sheep who wandered away. This is still 1 Peter. But now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Did you catch that? By his wounds, we are healed and we are the ones who wander away. What this means is that sin does not have any authority over me any longer other than what I give it. Because Jesus, God took my sins and commuted them to Jesus when he died on the cross for my sins. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says this, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ by faith so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Jesus talked about that when he said, whom the Son sets free are free, what? Indeed. We no longer need to be enslaved to behaviors and mindsets that displease God. Why? Because by faith, I accept that Jesus died on the cross for me personally. And in the same way that he laid down his life for me, I get to do what the wise men symbolized in giving Jesus the myrrh, I get to return the favor and lay my life down for Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says this, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So through the Magi's gift of myrrh, we know that they connected him to the Old Testament sacrificial system. We know that they were pointing out Jesus as the actual and ultimate sacrifice for sins. And though completely innocent, Jesus was prophesied by Isaiah 700 years earlier to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins in order to bring us healing and restoration with God. And the good news is that Jesus' willing sacrifice on the cross sets me free from my slavery to sin, cleanses our conscience because of the blood that he shed, and empowers us to walk in new life by following the promptings of the Holy Spirit as dictated to us by what we read in the Bible. So what do we do with this? I'm asking you to accept his death as the payment for your sins. That's what the Magi were saying about Jesus when they gave him the myrrh. Ask Jesus to forgive you for committing that sin that you're asking him to forgive you for. Thank him for forgiving you. And then commit to him your willingness for your life to be like myrrh. An offering in gratitude for the forgiveness of sins not to earn the forgiveness of sins. And ask God to remind you of his sacrifice the next time you're tempted to yield to the sin that you've given into too many times in the past. And then let every act of obedience from now on be a sweet-smelling sacrifice of love for the sacrifice made on your behalf and the atonement of Jesus for the sins of mankind. I'm going to give you a chance to talk to him about that right now. So if you would bow your head with me. 
God, I love you with all of my heart. Jesus, thank you. Not just for going to God on my behalf. Not just for giving me a picture in the scriptures of the personification of God himself. But offering yourself as a sacrifice for my sins. You're the only one who's ever lived the human experience without disobedience to God, selfishness towards others, or having transgressed your own conscience. And then you willingly laid your life down as an offering. And that's what the myrrh is a picture of. The atonement, the commuting of my sins to you, the commuting of your holiness to me, which is why I now have a relationship with you, God, because of what you, Jesus, did for me. If you're spiritually disconnected from God, then your prayer is, Jesus, I accept that what you did on the cross was to pay for my sins also. Ask God to forgive you and save you. God, forgive me and save me for the sins I've committed against you, against others, and even the way that I've sinned against my own conscience. Jesus, we would have never asked you to lay down your life, but since you volunteered, we would never be so disrespectful as to ignore it. So we're asking you to cover our sins also. Put in us, God, your Holy Spirit. Help us to be willing to lay down every area of our lives as a sacrifice for you, since you laid down your life as a sacrifice for us. Jesus, thank you for your resurrection with new life to give me new life. Let this life that I'm living now be freed from the sin that identified me before. And let the way that I live the rest of my life be more closely aligned with the way that you lived yours. Let your will be done in me. Let your will be done through me. God, every time that I'm tempted to sin, help me to remember that you sacrificed what you wanted to give me what I needed. Help me to sacrifice this sin that I crave so that I can give you what you have earned, and that's all of me. Let the sacrifices, the small sacrifices in comparison that I make on a daily basis in obedience to you and your word and to the promptings of your Holy Spirit be like this ointment, uh, a symbol of me laying down my life for you in response to you having laid down your life for me. This is our prayer. This is my prayer. I ask this in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.